This episode of New Politics was recorded on the 9th of July, 2021, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, the four phases of the COVID apocalypse are now being met with more spin and deflection, secrecy in government and keeping information from the public, and the Liberal Party. It's not the party of Menzies and Fraser anymore, so what exactly is it? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, Scott Morrison's women's advisor. The Sydney lockdown is entering its third week and both the New South Wales government and the federal government are spending more time trying to spin their way out of political trouble instead of spending all of their energy trying to fix the problems that they created in the first place. The vaccination program is still in a complete mess, although the vaccination rate is increasing, and Scott Morrison has appointed a military officer to manage the rollout. We still haven't been told why the military needs to be involved in managing the vaccination program, but Morrison does have the habit of bringing in the military whenever he mismanages anything, and this is tending to happen quite often these days. There are supposedly four phases to get Australia out of COVID, but there is no solid information being provided about how we move from one phase to the next, and it's still unclear whether this is just another announcement or something more substantial. There are still many details being kept away from the public and for the public to have confidence in the process of lockdowns and the vaccination program, a certain amount of information does need to be made public. And there's two good examples here. We need to know why 163 students from a prestigious North Shore High School were vaccinated before essential workers in aged care and disability support services. And we also need to know why the federal government deal with AstraZeneca is now being kept a secret because apparently releasing those details is a threat to national security. There are so many political factors that are bubbling under the surface here and it seems that the two most important governments in Australia are not acting in the public interest. I think the national security is a threat to the security of the job of the Prime Minister, the Minister for Health, the Premier of New South Wales, the aged care minister, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a part of me that wonders, and I I don't know that any of this is true, and I don't really know of uh, General Fruin. I assume that he is a decent man who's worked hard to get into his job and and all of that. But I wonder if he just looked at it and thought, I've had enough of this, and has basically come in and said, we're doing this because I can't stand the incompetence. Again, I don't know. It wouldn't surprise me. It's clear that we're in a a cycle of PR and spin not of excellent health results. And when I say that, I'm not at all disparaging the excellent work being done by the health departments, frontline workers, the support staff, all of that. And I say this every time because I don't think it can be said enough. We are lucky that we have first-class staff in the Department of Health because we've got fourth-class or even fifth-class politicians and and ministers running it. Well, we should probably wait for a medical practitioner to lead the army and the military forces back into Afghanistan. And if that ever happens, we'll know that the spin (laughs) and government marketing has really taken over everything. But... General John Fruin, he's been seconded from the Australian Signals Directorate, and that relates to military intelligence, spying, and all of those kinds of issues. 
he's been seconded to oversee the vaccination rollout. But it's a very, very strange choice, not so much in the person, but the fact that they're from the military. It sends out this awful message to the Australian public and the wider world that we're some kind of tin pot military junta. Now, this is a civilian task and it's a medical task. We're not actually at war. We don't need someone wearing military fatigues directing what is essentially a health crisis. It's funny. When they did the Northern Territory uh, intervention, they sent in the army. And again, uh, the frontline soldiers did, as far as I can tell, an excellent job. But instead of sending in social workers and health professionals and psychiatrists and psychologists and builders and they sent in the army. Now, the army can do a lot of that stuff, but it's not their main focus. The army's focus is defense of the Australian world borders and uh, sovereignty. There's a sense in which governments in panic turn to authoritarianism to get themselves out of trouble. There's also a sense in which that fails, whether it fails in the short term or the long term. And to have the head of signals, like if it was the head of the logistics or head of the army medical service, you'd think, well, okay, that makes a bit more sense maybe. Um, But when we have perfectly capable health departments at one at a federal level and then at six state levels, the military seems to be an extra layer of bureaucracy and logistics that won't speed things up. And this is not to undermine the role of the military within the Australian community, but it it is a questionable choice. And it's not just you and I who are pointing out this anomaly. There are many people in the community and many journalists in the media that are asking the same question. Why the militarisation of a medical process? The other factor is that if a government is bringing in the military to manage the vaccination program, well, it's almost like an admission of failure in your in your abilities to do the job it's also showing that there's a lack of confidence in your own medical officers and your own health systems to do these jobs but that's what they're actually very good at yeah and it's sending out the wrong message but it's also setting up this process of trying to spin and set up a public relations and marketing process to cover over the failures of a large number of government ministers as well over the last week i think we've had plenty of reasons to start to expect resignations from a ministerial level, both federally and and at a state level. And I know that in Victoria and in Queensland, there are people who think the same about their respective premiers. But when you look at things objectively, New South Wales is in a dire position. Brad Hazard said that we might just have to live with the virus, which is a basically surrendering. We can't live with the virus. It's too virulent. It, it's too expensive. And the Australian reported a split in cabinet. One faction led by Dom Perrottet, another man who should have resigned and probably been charged with fraud, saying we shouldn't lock down. A few journalists have come out in favour of this. Chris Yulman said, basically, oh, a few people will die. And I'm thinking, what type of psychopathy is this? Does he want his family to die? Does he want his friends to die? Does he want to die? Now, Vietnam 
has had a good model where they lock down locally. If there's a case in in an area, they lock it down locally for three or four days, get on top of it, contact trace it, put everyone in isolation, and it's gone. And this is getting less and less. They've eliminated it from um, Vietnam. Here we are 18 months down the track in Australia, and we've got a major outbreak in our major city. This is not success. Now, in this section, we've been flipping between the New South Wales government and the federal government, because if you do squint a little bit, they do tend to look very much the same. Scott Morrison is behaving more like the Prime Minister of New South Wales or the Prime Minister of Sydney rather than the Prime Minister of Australia. And I wouldn't be surprised if he's actually been instructing the New South Wales government to avoid or to totally avoid a lockdown because this will cause so many political problems for his government. But we've completed the second week of the lockdown and it might go into a fourth or a fifth week, even though I think that this extended lockdown could have been avoided by the New South Wales government acting earlier. This is where we are and it's it, this is a process that just has to be done properly. But already the public is receiving so many mixed messages. We're being told to stay at home, but all of the retail shops and non-essential services are open as an incentive for people to actually go out. The New South Wales Chief Medical Officer, she said that if anyone is showing signs of the coronavirus, well, she urged them not to go off to work. But if someone's showing signs of coronavirus, well, it's not a matter of urging them not to go to work or asking them politely. You have to give a much stronger message than that. Don't go anywhere, get tested and self-isolate until you receive a negative result. That's a much stronger message than just asking politely. They've announced that extra police will be sent to Sydney's southwest to enforce COVID lockdown. Now, I'm, I'm on the border of the southwest and I've had probably five police helicopters fly over in the co- last couple of days. And my guess is that they're checking for outdoor gatherings, that people have the requisite amount of people for visiting, etc. There's been a lot of dog whistle. Some people don't understand that you can't visit family. And it's clearly not aimed at certain demographics and aimed at other demographics. We didn't have this level of extra police being sent to Northern Beaches or Bondi. Now, I'm told that there were police on Bondi Beach breaking groups up, etc. And that's, that's great. That wasn't announced. That was just part of normal policing duty. To send extra police to an area, I think, is, is a dog whistle. Even if they did it in the Northern Beaches or in Bondi, they didn't announce it in the way they have. And I think that says a lot about the government's priorities, both the state and the federal government's priorities. I don't know what they think their legacy is going to be. Most politicians have one eye on the present and one eye on the future. And I don't know how they think their future is going to be, except that everything's going to work out and they'll fix it on the next one as they surge from chaos to chaos to chaos. Well, the Australian Financial Review published a large feature article on Gladys Berejiklian several weeks ago, and she appeared on the front cover of the magazine with the massive headline, The Woman Who Saved Australia. Now, personally, I think that was a little bit premature, but it also appeared around the time of those Gladys in Love promotional pieces that were appearing in the media. She probably got ahead of herself a little bit and was focused on other things when she should have been focusing on managing the coronavirus. But I guess we also won't be seeing those types of media headlines for some time to come. 
Uh, no. And the sad thing about Gladys is that till you look carefully, and you don't have to look that carefully, but you know, till you look a bit more closely, she seems very impressive. She came out of not well-off immigrant family, fought her way to the top or worked her way to the top of the Liberal Party. She impressed some people as treasurer. She didn't impress me as treasurer. Her whole thing was sell everything off and then claim a profit. But I know certain public servants who said that she was quite impressive into her grasp of policy. And when she took over from Mike Baird, there was an expectation that the sleazy corruption that had marred both Baird and O'Farrell's premierships, and by marred I meant totally wrecked and undermined, would be gone. She's just extended it. It's a real sense of disappointment. She should have been better, and she hasn't been. Well, some people have also asked us, well, why is this mixed messaging coming out from Gladys Berejiklian? What's going on there? Now, on the surface, you might just think, well, this is a sign of someone that's not quite competent or not going about their business in exactly the right way. But there's a lot of things that are going on under the surface that we don't exactly, well, the public is not exactly seeing. And the, Gladys Berejiklian is playing both sides of the political fence at the moment. She has implemented a lockdown, but that's annoyed so many of her cabinet ministers. And that's why we're getting these mixed messages about stay at home, but shops are still open. You mentioned Dominic Perrottet before. He's the New South Wales treasurer. Now, our audience outside of New South Wales might not have heard of Dominic Perrottet, and it's quite possible that quite a few of our audience members in New South Wales have not heard of Dominic Perrottet either. But he's been advocating opening up. He was totally against the recent Sydney lockdown. He also leads a, a right-wing Christian cabal, and... Gladys Berejiklian is trying to appease people within her party to secure her job. And I suspect that the longer the lockdown goes on, if it goes on for about another three or four weeks, there's going to be a lot of pressure on her position. And within any political party, irrespective of how secure the leadership is, there's always other members of parliament that are keen on that person's job. Oh, for sure. She should have resigned under all Westminster Protocol. She should have resigned when she was caught out lying to ICAC. And we can't say this enough. She's an illegitimate premier. This is part of the, the disappointment. And I know that there'll be people out there who say, oh, but David, you know, you're, you're a radical lefty. Of course you don't like her. But it's, it's not that simple. I think honest premiers or honest political leaders are worth their weight in gold. And it doesn't matter what side you're on because we can always argue against the policy. We can always discuss policy. We can always look at what worked and what didn't and how things could have been done better maybe or you know what, you know, what surprised us in how well it worked. But when you have this cloud hanging over you that you lied to essentially a court, you cannot expect to be trusted. Now, I know they've done a very good job in looking at and telling the community and shifting the issue that it was all about a love affair gone wrong. It wasn't really about that at all. And she lied about it. The fact that nobody stood up and said, hold on, this is not right. Gladys has to stand down as Premier because she's clearly unfit to do the job. Suggests that there's either, there's well, somebody like Dominic Perrottet who does want the job, who keeps leaking against Gladys. He is tied up in the uh, eye care scandal in which the board of the New South Wales insurance body, eye care, 
was being overpaid themselves to basically not distribute money to people who deserved it and who had earned it and who needed it. If he becomes Premier, it means that we've thrown Westminster right out and we're living in basically a kleptocracy and an open one. There's a couple of ministers in New South Wales who probably could do the job, but I don't think they want it because the job for them would be cleaning up. And it's a massive cleanup and it really needs the party to go into opposition at this point, remove the criminal element, let's put it that way, and find decent people. Again, it's not about where you sit on the political spectrum. We're going to have people who prefer the individual to the collective, who prefer lower taxes to higher taxes and government service, who prefer the public private enterprise to to run things because they think it does it more efficiently. This is all fine till it becomes dishonest and criminal and corrupt. Well, every successful leader these days, if they do rise to the top, they need a few scandals behind them for them to be able to rise to the top. So that seems to be an attribute of contemporary Australian politics. But at least Gladys Berejiklian, she is fronting up to the media every single day at the moment. That's a good thing. That's the least that we can expect from political leaders. But Scott Morrison pretty much disappeared for six days during all of this. And ever since he came back from overseas, from the G7 meeting, uh, that was last month, he was in quarantine for two weeks when he returned, made a few brief appearances during Parliament question time last week. He had a media conference one particular day, then he was sort of away for three days. He appeared for one day after that three-day period, and then he just disappeared for five days until yesterday. So we've talked about this before, that the job of the Prime Minister is not like any job in Australia. You can't just pick and choose when you have holidays or when you take time off. You can't take a sickie when you, whenever you feel like it. So something quite big has been happening in New South Wales over the past two weeks, and specifically within Sydney. That seems to be quite a large issue to be dealing with, the, the outbreak of the coronavirus. But the Prime Minister... Sure, it's a New South Wales issue, it's a Sydney issue, but he he does tend to be the Prime Minister for New South Wales, but he just disappeared for five days. When it hits Sydney or Melbourne, it's a national issue. Last week, there was outbreaks in Melbourne, outbreaks in Brisbane, outbreaks in Adelaide that had come from Bondi. It's really not that hard in terms of understanding it. In terms of fixing it, yes, it's a little bit more complex, But we can't have a lax approach, and it becomes a national approach when it hits Sydney or Melbourne. Scott Morrison had been caught out again on the weekend with the Julia Banks thing, which we'll be returning to, and disappeared. It's not the behaviour of a man who is doing the job well. Well, governments of all persuasions have got immense powers to to do the right thing, but they've also got immense powers to do the wrong thing as well. And they've also got immense powers to spin and control the media narrative that they put out. For a lot of these issues, and this this also applies to the New South Wales government, when there's a problem, there's spin and deflection that comes out. And they also shroud all of their actions within a cloud of secrecy as well. So... The deal between AstraZeneca and the federal government, the federal government is not prepared to release any of the details about this deal because, according to the federal government, it represents a real and substantial risk to national security. 
there are no details at all about the AstraZeneca deal. There's a letter of intent, which is pretty much just saying, well, we're sort of thinking about doing this and we'd like to do this at some point in the future, but that's about it. The other thing that we do know that it's around 50 million doses and the deal could be worth around a billion dollars. Why would a government not release these this information? It's got nothing to do with national security. It's, it's all about the vested interests that they've got, such as the arrangements that they've got with Aspen Medical to actually provide vaccines to disability services and aged care homes, which they haven't done very effectively at all. There's no substantial risk or any risk to national security. Releasing the details of the AstraZeneca deal is a risk to the federal government. It is. And you want the rest of the world to know what your vaccination program is so they know whether it's safe to send people here for tourism, for business, for for all the types of reason people come and visit countries and to know that you can rely that Australia has been properly vaccinated. So to call it national security makes no sense whatsoever. And I note they didn't explain what those national security issues were. And national security becomes their go-to excuse when you know they realise they've mucked it up again. They don't want people knowing just how badly they've mucked it up. I could be wrong, but the evidence suggests that I'm not. <laughs> well, it's an extension of that idea of commercial and confidence agreements that governments always used to put out when they refused to release details about any of their commercial arrangements with any sort of large-scale company. Other countries have released the details of their deals, the European Union, United Kingdom, United States, Mexico and Brazil but not Australia. So there's a whole lot of other reasons why they're not releasing the information. It's got nothing to do with commercial inconfidence. It's got nothing to do with national security. It's all about protecting the relationship between the federal government and their respective vested interests of the Liberal Party. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible or find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now follow us at Patreon. Up next, we look at what the Liberal Party is really all about these days because it's definitely no longer the party of Robert Menzies and Malcolm Fraser. Former Liberal Party member for Chisholm, Julia Banks, she's released a new book and it details some of the background to the Liberal Party leadership spill in 2018 when Scott Morrison became the Prime Minister and the steps that he took to undermine her, background against her to suggest that she was having some sort of emotional breakdown and ultimately force her out of the Liberal Party and out of Parliament. It's quite an ugly picture that she paints of Morrison. I left because of that three months of... um treatment where I realised Morrison, the, mo- the most powerful man in the country, were, he was, I, I describe him as like a menacing, controlling wallpaper. He was either doing it through his emissaries or directly. 
he wanted me silenced. He wanted me to be quiet. Um, he wanted me out of the parliament. I mean, he wanted me out of the country. Now, I've not heard of wallpaper <laughs> described in this way. There is some ghastly wallpaper out there, and it does remind me of the duel to the death that Oscar Wilde and his wallpaper <laughs> were having just before one of them had to go. But I guess there's always a first for everything. And she's also made an allegation that a senior cabinet minister who was still in parliament, he sexually harassed her in the prime minister's office while they were waiting for a late night parliamentary vote to take place. This will all play out in the court of public opinion. And it's yet another indication that the Liberal Party is still way behind the times in gender politics and equity. But the many allegations that are being made in the book also show that there are severe problems within the Liberal Party. And it's not the Liberal Party of Robert Menzies or Malcolm Fraser. It's more of a fundamentalist conservative party whose members are not representative of the electorate anymore. We can see the rot starting to set in in 1977, um, which is a key year in Australian politics. John Howard becomes treasurer. His philosophy was always that neoliberal, very dry economics. Bill Hayden becomes leader of the Labor Party, moving away from the, the Gough Whitlam notion of Keynesian. Now, to be fair, we should remember that uh, Whitlam started cutting tariffs in certain industries. But as neoliberalism has struggled with functioning properly in the real world, you get people who are very good at getting the numbers, getting pre-selection. They're not very good at public policy. So we have a party filled with people who most voters disagree with, which is why they become the wildest, almost socialists around election time in pork barreling. They only need to win by one seat. They prefer more, of course, but you only need to have or your two-seat majority because you need one for the speaker and then one to get the vote through. You then hope that you don't have scandals or health issues or the various things that take people out. And, of course, we know how they deal with scandals. They ignore them. There is absolutely no way Christian Porter should still be in Parliament. As much as I was critical of Gladys Berejiklian, what she did in Scales of Wrongness was nowhere near as wrong as what Christian Porter has seemed to have done. Christian Porter is a much, much worse individual. And with Julia Banks's revelations, it becomes quite clear that this is a party that is basically ignoring 75% of 51% of the population. There will be women who will support the Liberal Party no matter what. That's the nature of party politics, even while they dislike what's gone on. Well, we've also been asked, all of these issues occurred in 2018. Why do these need to be brought up now? It's 2021, three years later, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We don't need to look back at what's happened three years ago. But I think it's essential in the, the image of Scott Morrison. Like, who is Scott Morrison? The public still doesn't really know that much about him. And, and I think the Julia Banks book, it actually looks at those issues of who Scott Morrison is. He, he comes across as someone that's quite paranoid, someone that's more concerned about his image. Well, he's a political thug as well. It's, it's almost like he will use anything within his power to destroy people. And irrespective of whether they're in the Liberal Party or not, anyone that stands in his way is going to be mown down. And that's not unusual for a political leader. Like To get to the top in politics, you've got to cut down a lot of people on the way. But I guess there's a way of doing that. And the way that Morrison operates is more like gangster material. And it's a very odd and peculiar behaviour for a national leader. It's pursuit of power for the trappings. Most prime ministers to now 
had some kind of a vision for Australia. Sometimes it was undercooked, not quite ready. Sometimes it was not a great vision. Sometimes it had to change because of circumstances. Harold Holt, there's an undercooked vision. But he had a view of how Australia should run. He could articulate it more or less. He was in the job for a reason beyond the trappings, living in the nice house, going to the nice dinners, doing the trips, etc., etc. I don't know what Scott Morrison's vision for Australia is, except to hand it over to liberal donors. I don't know how he expects to articulate this vision. And I suspect that the whole idea of, ah, he's almost the accidental prime minister, the, the daggy dad who fell into the job because he was the best man for the time. That's worn very thin. And I think his body language and demeanor shows it. He doesn't know how to deal with women properly. He's not interested in serious allegations. Someone pointed out that they tried to get Julia Banks out of Parliament, but have done their very best to keep Christian Porter in Parliament. Well, it does say a lot about their priorities, but my thinking also is that Morrison, he's the end point of a process mm. that commenced in New South Wales in the early 1990s when they cleaned out a lot of the moderates from the New South Wales Liberal Party, but also the, the Federal Liberal Party as well. And that's sort of been consolidated by John Howard. Mm. It was progressed by Tony Abbott when he became Prime Minister. It was sort of scale back a little bit when Malcolm Turnbull was the Prime Minister and now it's been fast-tracked by Scott Morrison. Now, I possibly shouldn't say that it's the end point because there might be someone that's even worse than Scott Morrison to come in after him. And it's a process that started some time ago, started 30 years ago, and it's almost like they've picked the worst attributes of the US Republicans and the British Conservatives and just looking at the worst in people and trying to exploit that for political gain. We're being run by barbarians. We're being run by people whose aim is to basically have the job but not do the job. Look at Richard Colbeck. Nobody quite knows why he's in the job at all, and I think he's one of them. If we look at Liberal Party Senate selections, it's not a terribly impressive lineup. And as a historian, I can go through absolute giants, men and women of real substance, who we mightn't agree with, but we could at least say they know what they're talking about, they're smart, they're substantial, and, and they worked for what they thought was the best for Australia. I don't know that we have anyone like that in federal parliament or in New South Wales parliament, and South Australia is looking dodgy. Victoria is a rabble. Well, a lot, a lot of people that are taking pot shots at the modern Liberal Party, they do say that people like Menzies and Fraser, they'd be turning in their graves if they were able to see what the modern Liberal Party was all about. So Menzies actually did support trade unionism. Now, I'm sure that that was more lip service and around election time, he'd put up posters saying that the Liberal Party does support trade unionism. But there's no question about Malcolm Fraser and his strong human rights records. It's pretty obvious that that's what he represented. Now, there's a whole lot of other issues about Malcolm Fraser, like his his economic management, his economic philosophy. He had the famous razor or the infamous razor gang that was operating at that time. There's a whole lot of other issues to do with Malcolm Fraser that we won't look at today because it doesn't support our, <laughs> our agenda about what we're trying to say today. <laughs> Margaret Thatcher criticised Fraser for supporting the removal of apartheid, for example. 
times, and certainly nobody doubted. When Vietnamese refugees coming out of the war started coming to Australia, Gough Whitlam was not quite sure how to take them. Fraser opened the doors to them. His support of trade unions was much less than Menzies. Now, Menzies supported the Catholic trade unions, the conservative trade unions. He saw that he could work with trade unions and saw that it was a vital part of making sure that wages were fair, etc., etc. He didn't like the socialist or communist trade unions whatsoever. He's the one who goes, of course, to the uh, high court after running a referendum to try and ban the Communist Party. And there's a lot of anti-trade union rhetoric in that, that most unions are communist. He liked unions that basically agreed with him. The modern Liberal Party it supports quite an obscure agenda, it's anti-women, and that's shown by Morrison's actions against Julia Banks in 2018, despite what he's saying today. The lack of concern about Brittany Higgins as well, despite, again, what he's been saying, his actions have been totally opposite to that. 24% of the Liberal Party MPs are, are women. They've got this psychotic obsession with debts and deficits. They've got free market extremism. I guess that sort of extremism results in, well, an issue that we had during the week where there was an aged care homes tycoon. He purchased a $37 million Point Piper mansion when most of the residents that are in his aged care homes would probably be eating poor quality food every single day of the week. There he is purchasing a $37 million Point Piper mansion. And that's not the only one. There's other aged care tycoons. And situations like these seem to be the philosophies of the modern Liberal Party. One, one other issue is that many of the people that move into Parliament for the Liberal Party, they seem like very well-credentialed people and very reasonable people, either before they enter Parliament or in the early stages of their parliamentary careers. And I'm, I'm looking at people such as Katie Allen or Karen Andrews, their Liberal Party MPs from Victoria, and they did seem like reasonable people, but once they entered Parliament, it's, it's almost like they became radicalised and they become genuinely awful and very, very nasty people. It's, it's almost as if if you want to have the job, you've got to start to kick into the vulnerable. You've got to start to be awful and Machiavellian and is the job worth it? You know, is any job worth your soul? Certainly, I'm all in favour of people going in to try and help to try and improve. And again, I'm not going to agree with every method, but when you can see that people are doing their best for the community as a whole, you tend to be a bit less critical and they tend to be better members as well. And I know that there are liberal backbenchers who are working very hard for their community as there are labor and, and independence. And, but yeah, you reach a certain level and to, to keep the job, you have to start to have certain aptitudes. I don't know that I could compromise myself to that extent. The Liberal Party is an organisation and there's it's an organisation that is made up of people, but quite often it's the culture of the organisation that c creates all of those problems. And over the past 30 or 40 years, there's been so many companies and large-scale businesses that have said that they've got cultural problems as far as whether it's gender equity, macho cultures, bad performances, toxic workplace cultures, and they've tried to do their best to change that around and make sure that they stop having those toxic work cultures. And that's been quite prevalent within 
in big business and smaller businesses for the past 30 or 40 years. And that's not to say that big business and smaller businesses don't have their problems. Of course they do, but at least there's all these mechanisms in place for them to be able to resolve their toxic workplace cultures and make a difference. But it just seems like there are very, very strong issues within the, the Liberal Party that they're just not prepared to change. And that's why we keep getting these radicalised people that are within the Liberal Party But it's almost like they just deliberately want to sabotage all the good things that could exist in Australia. They're against the Labor Party, they're against the Greens, they're even against what the old Liberal Party was all about. It's politics without a human face. It's not a creative process, it's all about deconstructing society and everyone cops a serve. The disadvantaged, the workers, education, creativity, the arts and culture pretty much everyone that disagrees with their narrow world perspective. There's this fear of culture. You could always, from right-leaning people, you could always get really good discussions mm-hmm. on literature or music or, or art or philosophy or because part of being on the right was being that cultured. Could you imagine trying to talk to Scott Morrison about modern Australian literature or art of the 19th century? or any of those higher topics, you might get something about him about the Cronulla Rugby League team, and I'm not even sure he he knows enough about that to really make a comment. Now, I know that prime ministers and ministers should be busy and mightn't have the opportunity to catch up on this stuff. Gone are the days where a minister could get up and recite the whole of The Man from Snowy River, for example, at least on the on the right. Gone are the days where they'd know who Vladimir Nabokov was. Well, political leaders do have two different lives. They have their public profile, which of course everyone sees, and then they have their private lives that no one really knows very much about. So for all we know, Scott Morrison could be this literary genius behind the scenes. He might have a copy of Ulysses in his bookcase along with all the Russian classics. He might have a copy of Lolita up there. He might read Dostoevsky. He might be reading Tolstoy. He might even have a copy of The Master and the Margarita. But even if this was the case, he would never want that sort of information to to be released publicly because that ruins his public image. He perceives that being a, a reader or some kind of intellectual is not a good look. He wants to present himself as the the everyman, the the rugby. He's the rugby league man. He's the barbecue man. He's the cubby house the man. Ti- the type of bloke you'd want a beer with. Well, that that's right. But he wants to endear himself to the tradies class. But the Australian community is a lot more than just the tradies class. So Morrison could be some kind of closet intellectual or someone who buries himself in literature, but I really don't think he is. (laughs) No, but it's funny that Bob Carr was not the type of premier that you'd want to have a beer with or Don Dunstan or Jeff Kennett from the other side, yet they were all fairly effective election winners, Carr being the longest serving premier in New South Wales. They were quite honest about their love of maybe not so much Kennett, but love of the finer things in life. Kennett being Victorian had to follow the AFL, whereas Bob Carr being New South Wales didn't have to follow the NRL. But that's a Sydney-Melbourne difference. (laughs) It's really interesting that it's not necessarily a vote winner. People will vote for the better candidate. And if Gough Whitlam was a highly cultured 
as was Fraser, and yet were able to, at least for a time, convince the public that even if they weren't approachable in that way, that they were still capable of doing the job and still understood the the problems and values of, of everyday Australians. I think trying to present yourself as an everyday Australian may not always work. Just getting back to the Liberal Party, we do have to consider the common factors that are happening within these debacles, within the vaccination rollout and national quarantine and now the Sydney lockdown. Now, I'm not sure if we can look at that as a complete debacle yet because there's still a long way to go there. But it's the New South Wales Liberal Party. That's at the heart of this. And, you know, while the Victoria Liberal Party has been quite despicable down in Melbourne, they're they're not in office. The South Australian and Tasmania Liberals have been quite competent. They've done what they have to do down there. And as far as we can see, they haven't been trying to play these issues too politically. But Morrison and Berejiklian, all they've done pretty much throughout all of this process, but, you know, aside from maybe the first two months of the pandemic last year, all they've tried to do is point score. They've dissed all the other Labor state premiers. Yeah, generally they've tried to score as many political points out of this process as possible. And we will have to put up with this process for a little while longer. There's not an election until 2022 federally, although there was talk about having one this year. New South Wales doesn't go to the polls until March 2023. So we've got a little bit of time before there's a possibility of any change within the Liberal Party. Normally, these sort of cultural changes that do occur within political parties, they occur when a political party is in opposition. They have a good look at themselves and think, well, what what do we need to do to make ourselves more presentable to the public? New South Wales, the Liberal Party has been in government for 10 years. Federally, they've been in office for eight years. And when you look at your record and think, well, we've actually been in government for a long time. So let's just keep doing the same thing. And there's never any opportunity to reform yourselves or think about what you could do differently. I suspect that the West Australia branch of the Liberal Party is doing quite a lot of soul searching at the moment because they were completely wiped out in this year's election. Queensland Liberal Party is probably doing quite a lot of soul searching as well because they had a major swing against them as well. I'm not sure what the Liberal Party in Victoria is going to do, but generally you do a lot of soul searching when you're in opposition. And if you've had a long time in government, why change when you've got electoral success? For sure, success breeds success. And one of the factors is soft press. And I know that you can, and you know, Bob Carr was an, an example of this, you can win and win quite well without any press support. But it helps. The way stories get maybe less attention than they might, you know, hence Gladys's problems being chalked up to having a bad boyfriend, not for abetting, aiding and abetting his corruption. I, I do hope that the Liberal Party in Queensland is looking at, and in Western Australia, is looking at, well, what, what went wrong? And the Liberal Party in Western Australia weren't helped by the fact that their leader, Lisa Harvey, stepped down, basically saying, I can't win, um, and handed Zach Kirk up a hospital pass. And in fact, Deb Frecklington was reported by the Liberal Party for electoral fraud. None of that helped. But the fact that their leaders are doing this showed that they're in in deep existential trouble. I imagine that if Labor can win the next federal election, that there will be a horrible purge in the Liberal Party. It's harder to do these things while you're in government too, to be fair. But... We live in unprecedented times and anything can happen. 
so I, I'm, I'm going to stop projecting into the future because we really don't know. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.